Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dracula Class 9, our last class on the... Our, well, the, our last class on the last section of the text that we haven't talked about. We'll still have another class on the text itself next time, uh, when, of course, I am addressing your questions. That's what I wanted to begin with. And uh, we'll end with it as well. The reminder that I would like you to uh, email me if you have any questions or topics you'd like to discuss. What have I missed? What did I, you know, skim over? What would you like to hear more about? Um, would be happy to... Um, uh, uh, would, would, would be happy to, uh, to, to, to talk about uh, whatever you guys want to talk about next time. So... That's assuming I get through all of my slides tonight, which I think there's a pretty good chance of. Um, uh, yes, of course, I, 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 I must shamelessly admit that I, uh, I, I titled this class Our Star and Our Hope. It's, of course, a quotation from Van Helsing. Uh, but, uh, I, I, of course, I knew that would, that uh, quotation would rather resonate uh, with Tolkien fans. Um, but, um, oh, yeah, Jan, the... the, the you can email me at uh, the, yes Olson at mythgard.org that will get to me um, uh, Corey dot Olson at signumu.org will get to me um, my old Olson at tolkienprofessor.com should also get to me too so really any of those they'll all pretty much come to the same place um, so uh, so so that'll be good Sarah wants to talk about Quincy Morris awesome yeah we should talk more about Quincy we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about Quincy Morris today Sarah um, but uh, at least that's my plan. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'd be happy. I'd, I'd be uh, interested to hear what uh, what angle you had uh, on that and wanted to talk about. So um, very good. Anyway, yeah. So <laughs> Gerald Michael was sort of uh, uh, talking about the hope that I'll get through all the slides. No, 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 no. Um, uh, no, I, uh, I I I have uh, I have I'm confident in my ability to get through all of my slides. Um, but uh, yeah, so of course, um, uh, 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 but no, Arthur Dracula isn't Arendel and Estelle. Mina is Arendel and Estelle, of course. Um, yeah, exactly. Jordan Sunderland says, never tell me the odds. Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, um, let's, um, let's, let's, let's jump right to it here this evening. So I'm going to be kind of jumping around in the text a little bit tonight, um, but I wanted to start with a, a subject that we had talked about last time, and I wanted to come back and, and sort of look at how that comes in um, uh, in, uh, in, in the last section here. And that's the spot on Mina's forehead. We were talking about sort of the, the utility of the spot, why, why it's there, what is the role that it plays, um, in as much as we can answer the question from within the text. Okay. Let me say this again. In as much as we can answer the question, why does this happen? Why does Stoker let this happen to Mina? Why does God let this happen to Mina? In as much as we can answer that question from within the text, um, the answer seemed to be to serve as a reminder, right? We saw three characters in three consecutive pages beginning to have thoughts. Maybe it was all a dream. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we don't have to worry about anything anymore. Maybe we can just kind of settle back into the kind of complacency that we used to be in. And the uh, the the sight of Mina's scar for Jonathan, for Doctor Seward, and for Mina herself kind of jarred them uh, out of this. Um, and uh, and and exactly, Arthur. No, she is not. In fact, uh, um, uh, she is not. In fact, 
a horcrux. Um, yeah, Karina says uh, uh, she's sort of glad that it is. It isn't because God hates Mina, uh, which is she says, which is rather, which is nice because I was rather sad for a moment there. Exactly. I mean, it's those those. There are those quotations, right, that like, you know, like Dr. Seward saying where, you know, as far as symbols go, she is outcast from God, you know, and her own language about being unclean and, you know, even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh and pretty strong language uh, that she uses. And it seems so, it seems so unfair, right? Uh, uh, but anyway, um, I wanted to look at how that how that scar continues to play a role. Um, it plays a similar kind of role. It's sort of me, the the scar itself, Mina, even herself, sort of more broadly. We begin to see a little bit more about the role that she plays, and of course, ultimately, the um, uh, the primary theme of this class is going to be Mina, because it's like the primary thing at the end of the book, just about. Um, uh, so anyway, let's look at a couple passages. This is when Van Helsing has cheerfully declared that he's going to take Mina with him to Castle Dracula, right? While the while the four of the other uh, uh, young and vigorous men split up uh, and pursue the Count in different ways. Do you mean to say, Pro- Professor Van Helsing? This is, of course, Jonathan reacting in appallment. App- is there a noun form of appalled? Appallment. App- uh, appallment? Shouldn't there be a noun like the state of being appalled? Right? If not, we need to come up with one. So I'm open to suggestions. Do you mean to say, Professor Van Helsing, that you would bring Mina in her sad case and tainted as she is with that devil's illness right into the jaws of his death trap? Not for the world! Not for heaven or hell! He became almost speechless for a minute and then went on. Do you know what the place is? Have you seen that awful den of hellish infamy, with the very moonlight alive with grisly shapes, and every speck of dust that whirls in the wind, a devouring monster in embryo? Have you felt the vampire's lips upon your throat? Here he turned to me, and as his eyes lit upon my forehead, he threw up his arms with a cry. Oh, my God, what have we done to have this terror upon us? And he sank down on the sofa in a collapse of misery. Um, yeah, Nancy, you're absolutely right that a lot of this is based on his own traumatic experience there, of course, certainly. I mean, he is the only one who has been to Castle Dracula, and is obviously bringing it all to, back to him. Um, and uh, so Veronica says that Google claims appallment is a word. I, you know, Nancy, I kind of like appalledness even better. I think, I think, I think that that works. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, so in his appalledness or appallment, I suppose. Veronica, if we want to go with Google. Um, Jonathan is, of course, remembering the horrors of Castle Dracula. Now, you notice what's happening here? right? I called this Van Helsing's correction because you'll notice that this is the exact reverse of the mistake that he made before, right? Um, Van Helsing didn't want to bring Mina to the Count's house, like Carfax, which was super tame <laughs> compared to Castle Dracula, right? Um... Uh, no, 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 we must keep Mina out of this, right? Oh, there will be sights and sounds and things that will, you know, and as John, Dr. Seward would say, it, you know, it, they, will, they will infallibly wreck her, right? And now here's Van Helsing saying, oh, no, no, she and I are going to go by ourselves into, into Castle Dracula itself, right? Um, 
And uh, so, so on the one hand, you can see it's, I, I call it a correction. That's, of course, a little tongue in cheek. It's not like he's actually trying to make up for that. But we certainly see him not making exactly the same mistake that he made before, right? And the, uh, the very active reversal of it, uh, you know, because, of course, taking Mina with them into the, uh, the vampire's lair is precisely what he balked at doing before, and now we see that he doesn't balk at it, even under far more extreme circumstances, as Jonathan says. Of course, you re- you'll notice that that position is reversed as well. Right, remember, Jonathan was the one who, on the one hand, you know, remember Jonathan being of two minds, right? On the one hand, he didn't want to bring Mina because he wanted to protect her, right? He was really found the idea of attracting Mina very, you know, and, and to uh, protecting her by leaving her behind, very attractive, right? Um, and yet he, um, uh, he, he also felt that it wasn't right, right? He was not comfortable with excluding Mina. He was not comfortable um, with... Uh, cutting off the the um, confidence that had lain between the two of them. Um, you know, he was custo- accustomed to take Mina fully into his confidence at all times, and so keeping things from her seemed very counterintuitive to him. Well, here's Jonathan now, the one who's saying, no, we can't possibly take her along, uh, and uh, yet there's really no choice. But again, what is the turning point? Him his eyes lighting on her forehead and recalling what... And, and of course you notice the transition. Have you felt the vampire's lips upon your throat? He says to Van Helsing. Van Helsing's answer is no. No, he hasn't felt the vampire's lips. But, of course, Jonathan is reminded in that very instant that Mina, his wife, indeed already has. Um, and that even his desire to keep her safe is... sort of hopeless, right? Even kind of pointless in the end, right? Um, as you know, as, as Mina herself perceives when Dr. Seward is wanting to protect her from the vampire women, right? When they're coming out and visiting them by night, and Mina says, there's no one safer in the world from them than I am. What are they going to do to me, right? Turn me into a vampire? Oh, dear. Right? What would that be like, right? So she, she knows, like, there's nothing they can do to her. Because it's too late for her, right? And that is, you know, they've, they've, the vampires have done their worst to her. Uh, the vampire baptism of blood, that doesn't get worse than that, right? They have no more, no greater power than her, uh, over her than that. Um, so again, Jonathan is, Jonathan is once more reminded. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, notice the sort of the, the shift from despair to strength and from you know and 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 hope you know resolution leading to hope um you know I, ultimately you know Jonathan is in sort of despair here right there's nothing there's nothing we can do we can't I can't protect her right but it is from that ultimately that again that sort of that strength comes and hope comes Van Helsing is quite right here. They're doing the right thing here. At last, they're finally doing the right thing uh, with Mina. Um, though, of course, there are significant problems, uh, as we'll see. Um, but, of course, it's not just a matter of Mina serving as a kind of reminder of the situation, right? As a kind of corrective, whenever their own thinking tends to kind of go in the wrong direction, right? Um, you know, the, the, the reminder of the spot on her forehead kind of keeps them focused 
on task, right? But it's not just that. Um, it's not. It's not just the sort of the passive reminder of what they should be doing. Um, she also serves in a more active way as well, right? Um, but uh, let me show you what I mean. I found this passage even more striking. This is one that really jumped out at me more strongly than I ever had before uh, in this time reading through the book. Um, this is Van Helsing speaking of his experience looking down at the vampire women as they are lying asleep in their coffins, right? And this fascination, this sort of hypnotism um, that he is that he is falling under as he does so. There is some fascination, surely, when I am moved by the mere presence of such an one, even lying as she lay in a tomb fretted with age and heavy with the dust of centuries, though there be that horrid odor such as the lairs of the Count have had. Yes, I was moved. I, Van Helsing, with all my purpose and my motive for hate, I was moved to a yearning for delay which seemed to paralyze my faculties and to clog my very soul. It may have been the need of natural sleep, and the strange oppression of the air were beginning to overcome me. Certain it was that I was lapsing into sleep, the open-eyed sleep of one who yields to a sweet fascination, when there came through the snow-stilled air a long, low wail, so full of woe and pity that it woke me like the sound of a clarion, for it was the voice of my dear Madame Mina that I heard. Van Helsing is essentially getting hypnotized, right? He is falling into a trance. This is part of the power that the vampires have over people we saw. Uh, remember the, 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 that basilisk glare that Dracula has, right? That he can kind of, uh, you know, unleash when he's lying there asleep. It's what causes Jonathan to miss his throat and hit his forehead with the shovel, right? Way back then? Way back when? Um, and uh, uh, so anyway, we, we, we know that they can, inf even when they're lying there, asleep, they can have this sort of mental influence uh, over people. Um, and ultimately, I mean, you'll notice at the end of the day, um, it's all about the mental control, right? It is all about the enslavement of the wills of others. That's the essence of vampirism. It's what they do, right? Um, even more than the, I mean, you know, the, the, the mere physical danger of death and the, you know, the draining of blood is um, very small, right? The sexual angle for as much as it is played up and as, 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 and as important as it is. I mean, I, I'm very far from denying the significance of that theme as we've talked about the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the husband wife thing and all, and, and, and all that. It's very important. But again, it's not about arousing desire exactly. Right. Or really much. I mean, it does, but it's not just that either. Right. It's about the, it's about this fascination Right, more broadly understood, for their for the will of the human person to become enthralled um, by the vampire, and that kind of that's ultimately that's what we saw with Lucy, literally from the beginning. Right, her susceptibility uh, to the influence and call of the vampire is what got her into trouble in the first place. Um, we see it exerted at every point along the way. Um, that's where the real struggle lay. Uh, with uh, sort of the battle for Lucy, right, as they were trying to save her life, not really knowing what was going on. But um, uh, anyway, here's, so here's Van Helsing falling under that, and what arouses him? The voice of dear Madame Mina, right? Uh, and she's just 
wailing, right? A wail so full of woe and pity that it woke me like the sound of a clarion. Um, does that mean that she herself, Mina, herself is showing pity? Possibly. Is it arousing pity in him? Is it making him feel pity for Mina? That seems a little bit more likely that that's probably what he means because that is her, 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 her wail is full of woe. Um, her suffering, right? He is reminded at this moment of Mina's suffering. And this, again, this, and, and, it's, and it's that reminder that enables him, that strengthens him to resist this fascination of the vampire. Um, and again, that it just, it brings me back and kind of expands on that whole reminder thing. It's, it's easy to kind of trivialize that, right? It's not merely like they were like forgetting about the whole vampire thing and then they see Mina's you know, spot on her forehead, and they're like, "Oh yeah, right, vampire killing." That's what we. That's what. That's what we're about to do. Um, I mean, there's almost an element of that, right? When when the theme kind of first gets introduced, but of course, it's even then deeper than that, and by the end, it's much more, much deeper than that, right? So again, when we come back from from this vantage point to ask the question, you know. Why? Why does it, it seem so unfair? Why? You know, Mina doesn't deserve it. Why? You know, she's the innocent victim. Um, uh, you know, it, you can say that the men deserved it, right? They, they screwed it up. They exposed her essentially um, through their misguided attempts to protect her. Um, she didn't do anything wrong, right? Um, it seems hard luck on Mina, and yet look at the role that it plays. Look at the role that her suffering itself plays, right? She is the one who, it is the knowledge of her suffering. This is what, um, you know, uh, um, Carolyn, using the, the word that you used uh, earlier on, it galvanizes the group into action, as Carolyn Morehouse was saying. Um, yeah, throughout, right? Um, it gives them, she becomes their inspiration, she becomes their motivation. Um, it's like they have they have the sort of abstract motivation, right? We need to cleanse the world from such a monster of evil. They talk that way back right after uh, Lucy's true death, right? Um, but that in itself is not really enough. Would that have been enough to lead them to pursue him from England all the way back to Transylvania? I rather doubt it, right? Um, it's explicitly Mina and Mina's suffering and the urgency of... of uh, protecting Mina and and curing Mina, destroying Dracula before Mina uh, can wholly succumb. You know, she does wholly succumb. Um, becomes their entire motivation, right? This is she is their inspiration in this more active way, again, not just a passive reminder, a more active reminder. Though this is still, we're still not even yet talking about what she herself does and what she says and the choices that she herself makes, right? This is still just sort of. Um, her as symbol. Rachel asks, would the others have fought so hard for her if there wasn't the innocent victim aspect? Well, no, I think not, Rachel. I mean, you're right to say that in a sense, the very, the very injustice or sort of, a, you know, apparent injustice of Mina's affliction, right? The fact that she most, most, you know, manifestly did not deserve this horrible thing that happened to her makes the thing, you know, far more, um, far more striking, far more urgent, right? Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think that that, um, that plays, in its sense, a, uh, a, positive, a positive role. Um, yeah, Veronica points out that Dracula uses Mina of plotting against him. Um, yes, exactly. Um, 
she is a warrior uh, uh, who's hurt in the war against Dracula, Veronica. Absolutely. Um, did you notice what happens? Right. Notice one of the consequences of this whole thing. That is the fact that Mina's state, Mina's victimization, becomes the rallying cry and the motivation that leads ultimately to, to Dracula's dis, uh, uh, destruction. Remember his words to Mina, right? That while the men, you know, were off invading his house and everything, he says, I was countermining them, right? I was mining underneath their mine and caving them in. And, you know, they were, they were trying to go against me, but I was double-crossing them, right, and coming back. But it turns out that actually that is the the very means by which he is ultimately going to be destroyed, right? That in that action, um, he brought about, he basically, uh, sort of in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an indirect sense, sort of gave them the weapon by which he was going to be, uh, uh, by which he's going to be destroyed. Tomas, yes, uh, we are to assume that when, the Dra- when Dracula was killed, all of his living victims recover. Um, it is not made explicit what would happen to the dead ones, like the three vampire women. They're de- like their physical body. They're like Lucy Westenra, right? Although more advanced in evil than Lucy Westenra, right? They are what they were afraid Lucy Westenra was going to become to, but she hadn't fully gone over to yet, right? But her 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 living body had already died. Those vampire women died like centuries ago, right? So their physical bodies are dead, which is why when their heads are cut off and and uh, and they're staked, they crumble into dust, right? Because their bodies resort to their natural state, and their natural state was these the they should have decayed and crumbled to dust centuries ago. So, um, but what would have happened? Um, uh, what would have happened uh, when the uh, uh, you know, had Dracula been killed before? I mean, they—they they of course they're—they're—they they're, get staked before Dracula does, so we don't really know what would have happened to them had he been staked first. But it is made clear, it's certainly in Mina, it's made clear that uh, that living his living victims, um, the the taint will remove, uh, will be removed. Okay, um, let's um, let's keep going. Let's talk, let's talk about Mina's will again. We talked about sort of. The role that she plays, the, the 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 central role that she plays without even trying, right? Just by being a victim, just by by being, you know, by having happened to her, what happened to her. Um, this is the the sort of the, the central and important role that she plays. But what about what she actually does? Let's actually talk about her her own will and her own choices. Before sunrise and sunset, however, she is very wakeful and alert and it has become a habit for Van Helsing to hypnotize her at such times. At first, some effort was needed, and he had to make many passes, but now she seems to yield at once, as if by habit, and scarcely any action is needed. He seems to have power at these particular moments to simply will, and her thoughts obey him. Right? And I think this is a fascinating passage. Notice, of course, first, the clear parallel between the hypnotic trance that Van Helsing puts her in and Dracula's own mental control over her, right? Remember the words of Dracula, uh, you know, right before the before he made her drink his blood, right before that vampire's baptism of blood, as Van Helsing always calls it. Um, uh, right before that, he says to her, when my brain says, come to you, then you will come, right? Uh, crossing over sea, land and sea. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and to that end, this, right? And he makes, that's when he makes her drink the blood. Um, so, 
when my brain says come to you, right? So uh, he he's he, he's talking about his mental. So clearly he by making her drink his blood, he is increasing the level of mental control he has over her, right? And we see its effect almost instantly, right? There is to her now the silence, as Van Helsing says. Um, her words, she can't speak, right? And she might reveal anything that she knows to Dracula if, you know, his brain says, speak to her, she will speak, and she will reveal what she knows. So she realizes this, you know, so she, Van Helsing, and Dr. Seward all realize this at the same time and realize that, again, we talked about this last time, um, the uh, the sort of the horrible irony, the kind of the final justice, in a sense, having made the foolish choice to exclude her from their councils uh, because they thought her too weak to handle it the first time, now they must exclude her from their councils, almost as a kind of not exactly punishment, but at the very least consequence of their actions, right? Which seems, um, uh, uh, you know, hard, but just. Um, but thinking about the reasons for that exclusion, right? Thinking about the the lack of freedom that she has, right? We see her under the influence of the vampire, um, and he is able to draw her to him and... Uh, uh, and compel her, so does Van Helsing, right? Um, and even the same action is being done, the same sort of mental, psychological, spiritual action, that is how she, her brain goes to him, right? When my brain says, come to you, you will come. Well, when Van Helsing's brain says, go to her, she goes, right? And she goes in mind to be with Dracula in his coffin box, and she can see and hear what he can see and hear because of the connection between them, right? Um, and uh, yeah, Philip Lord wants to know about the uh, the uh, the um, the time zone differences. Is it uh, is is she free at sunrise and sunset where she is, or sunrise and sunset where Dracula is? Clearly, Philip, where she is, um, and whatever the cause of that, when it's never explained. I mean, what precisely is the mechanism? Why is it uh, that? certain positions of the sun have some kind of influence over the power of the vampire. Why the tides? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's never explained. We don't have any idea. Bram Stoker doesn't seem to show the faintest interest in explaining the mechanisms behind those things. We just, we know those as parameters and that's, um, and that's kind of it. Um, but, um, anyway. So again, there's this parallel, right? Um, Dracula can take her mind to be with his mind. He can commune with her mind. He can control her mind. Van Helsing does too. But of course, the parallel itself illustrates the difference, right? Sunrise and sunset are times of freedom for her. When she is released, at least temporarily, um, briefly, from the mental control of the Count. That's why they keep having these important meetings at sunrise and sunset, because then she can speak and speak freely where she, she she does not, she can't say, right? And we've seen this before. Lucy couldn't talk about it, right? That's why she could never say what was bothering her and what she was so afraid of before. Um, we saw this with Renfield, right? Remember in, in that piteous speech of Renfield's, um, woe is me, I cannot tell, right? Um, you know, he, he, he tried to hint around as much as he can, I am not my own master in this, right? Um, but he, you know, so he couldn't, his, 
he was not free to speak and uh, uh, and he couldn't even explain that he wasn't free to speak. Um, here she does have freedom, and it's at these times of freedom that Van Helsing has this sort of parallel power over her mind. But again, that parallel to me serves to emphasize the difference there as well, the contrast between the mental control that Dracula uh, uh, has over her and the mental control that Van Helsing exerts over her. And the primary difference, as is emphasized here in this passage, is her own will, her own compliance, her own submission, her own complicity, right? Um, she, uh, uh, she yields at once. So, you know, so the scarce any action is needed. Um, she wants him to be able to hypnotize her. So this is her working in collusion with Van Helsing, right, to undermine Dracula. Um, not Dracula enforcing and enslaving her own mind uh, and her own her own thoughts. Um, this is the Count doing it. It's sort of the other side of that equation we were talking about. In the trance of three days ago, the Count sent her his spirit to read her, to read her mind. This is that time when she has that lethargy that comes over her and she's sleeping so soundly she can't be awakened. Or more like he took her to see him in his earth box in the ship with water rushing, just as it go free and ri free at rise and set of sun. He learned then that we are here. For she have more to tell in her open life with eyes to see and ears to hear than he shut as he is in his coffin box. Now he make his most effort to escape us. At present he want her not. And we can see, again, the compulsory nature of the journey, sort of the spiritual journey that she takes. I can't help but remember the Exodus image, imagery. Remember the, uh, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud? Right, and it, it had both the day guidings and the night guiding in it, right? Uh, and she wondered if this was some such spiritual guidance that was coming to her in her sleep. Uh, yes, yes, it was uh, not a good guidance. It wasn't guiding her to the promised land. It wasn't guiding her uh, out of slavery and into the land of promise. It was guiding her away from freedom and into slavery, but it was guiding her, right? True enough. Um, and we can... We can so we can see that kind of echoed here in what I think is 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 kind of a cool way. But notice or remember also the importance of the count's selfishness. Right, um, he is completely selfish. As much as he is enslaving her, he doesn't care about her. Right, he's not interested in her. Um, having made the use of her that he meant to make of her, he cuts her off. Right, and casts her aside and leaves her freer than she would have been. And this is a mistake on his part. Van Helsing explains, He has so used your mind, and by it he has left us here in Varna, while the, whilst the ship that carried him rushed through enveloping fog up to Galatz, where doubtless he had made preparation for escaping from us. But his child mind only saw so far, and it may be that, as ever is in God's providence, the very thing that the evildoer most reckoned on for his selfish good turns out to be his chiefest harm. The hunter is taken in his own snare, as the great psalmist says. For now that he think he is free from every trace of us, of us all, and that he has escaped us with so many hours to him, then his selfish child brain will whisper him to sleep. He think, too, that as he cut himself off from knowing your mind, there can be no knowledge of him to you. 
there is where he fail. That terrible baptism of blood which he give you makes you free to go to him in spirit, as you have as yet done in your times of freedom when the sun rise and set. At such times you go by my volition and not by his, and this power to good of you and others as you won uh, yes, as you have won from your suffering at his hands. This is now all the more precious that he know it not, and to guard himself have even cut himself off from knowledge of our ware. We, however, are not selfish, and we believe that God is with us through all this blackness and these many dark hours. We shall follow him, and we shall not flinch, even if we peril ourselves, that we become like him. Okay. So, the, uh, the, the hunter is taken in his own snare, right? Or, as Tolkien said, oft evil will doth evil mar, right? And that, we see, is what Van Helsing is asserting is going on here. The selfishness of Dracula ultimately is undermining him and his own position, right? He seeks to cast away Mina, thinking that by shutting her out, there can be no advantage to them. But in fact, they find, uh, as Van Helsing argues, well, gosh, okay, it's not that, like, the whole vampire baptism of blood thing was a net gain or anything, right? I mean, you know, it's not like he's saying two thumbs up on the vampire baptism of blood. We, we, uh, we cannily maneuvered ourselves into having a double agent in our midst, right? You know, we, we now have a, we, we, we now have inside information. But, of course, that is indeed the consequence, right? Not that they would have asked it, not that it makes it okay or makes it beneficial, but um, but it happened, and good does come of it, right? Good comes of it for them, and the evil that Dracula thought to do, um, he is incapable of doing as he thinks, right? He thinks he can cut her off, but as Van Helsing points, off, points out, he can't cut her off, right? Um... Yes, the biter bit, Arthur. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so once again, we can see how this horrible, tragic situation is, in fact, part of you know one of the pieces that is being used to bring about ultimately the good end and the very evil that the evil one is doing in order to bring about his ends is ending up working against him, and ultimately counteracting him. Um, you'll notice, of course, again, this the emphasis on selfishness and unselfishness. Remember way back um, at the beginning, like first class or second class, I was talking about Dr. Seward's diagnosis of Renfield and his very, one of his very first posts on Renfield, and he was talking about selfishness and unselfishness. Remember that business about centripetal force and centrifugal force, right? When the, when, when the centripetal that is pointing in towards the center... Uh, is dominant, right, when the, when, the, when the person is primarily selfish, right, um, uh, then, then one thing when he's talking about how, like, that it's sort of those kinds of lunatics are less dangerous than the centrifugal ones, that is, those that, that whose devotion to duty or to a cause um, are, it outweighs their own selfishness, right, because um, the selfish ones are going to pr- try to protect themselves and they're not going to put themselves at risk, whereas those who are unselfish will not think of the consequences at all. So we're there first first introduced to this idea of the the inward focused or the outward 
focused, right? The selfish versus the unselfish. And I said at the time that although it kind of seemed a little bit unlikely and it didn't, you know, that passage isn't, it's one of those passages, and there are a bunch of them in this book that you kind of read in your and D- Dr. Seward has a bunch of them. You know, you, you sort of read and you're kind of like, uh, okay, Dr. Seward, whatever, I'm just going to kind of leave that aside and move forward, right? Um, but but I said at the time, it, it's it's one of the, it becomes one of the really dominant themes of the entire book, one, one, one of the most important ideas in the whole book, and I think we really see that really come into its own uh, here in this last section. In the end, that question of outward focus, unselfish perspective, and inward focused selfish perspective is the ultimate difference between Dracula and the rest of them. All other kinds of definitions of you know, kind of good and evil and, and, uh, and you know, what they're doing and what he's trying to accomplish and why they're... Tra- all of it ultimately kind of comes down into those, uh, into those terms. I, um, we'll see a little bit more as we, uh, as we move forward. Um, Mina, of course, does begin to change as she goes along. This is uh, Van Helsing writing uh, in his cumbrous old-fashioned, because Mina has stopped using her traveling typewriter. Um, And um, this is really charming, right? It seems to have affected Madame Mina, the cold. He's talking about how cold it is. It seems to have affected Madame Mina. She has been so heavy of head all day that she was not like herself. She sleeps and sleeps and sleeps. She, who is usual so alert, have done literally nothing all the day. She even have lost her appetite. Gosh, she's not eating or drinking, right? Kind of like the Count in Count Dracula. That's not good. She made no entry into her little diary. She who writes so faithful at every pause. Something whispered to me that all is not well. However, tonight she is more vif. Her long sleep all day have refresh and restore her. For now she is all sweet and bright as ever. At sunset I tried to hypnotize her, but alas, with no effect. The power has grown less and less with each day, and tonight it failed me altogether. Well, God's will be done, whatever it may be and whithersoever it may lead. Um, more vif, more lively, you know. Um, uh, yeah, so um, now the apparent naivete of this is really adorable, right? I mean, like the obtuseness that Van Helsing is showing here is kind of charming, right? Uh, I mean, it's like, wow, yeah, she s- was sleeping all day long, and then, but then at nighttime, she was, she was up, right? She was, she was really, br- but it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it was because she had a nice nap and she felt better after her nice nap. It has nothing to do with like being more active during the day and wishing to sleep, preferably in a coffin on sacred dirt by day, right? No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that. And, uh, you know, something's wrong with her appetite, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's nothing, right? She's not, she just wasn't hungry, right? I'm sure she'll be, I'm sure she'll be fine. And I, you know, that time when her will is free and uh, I can hypnotize her and we can work together on that, uh, didn't work at all. Um, And it, it seemed like those windows of freedom that she used to experience have now closed actually to nothing. Um, but, um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's nothing, right? And it's, it, it's, um, we've seen Van Helsing be obtuse before. It's not like it's impossible for him to be obtuse. 
it's impossible for me to imagine that he's simply being obtuse here. Um, I think that he is understanding exactly the significance of what he's talking about. Um, uh, he's clearly sort of making excuses, right? And I, I, I read this in two different ways. On the one hand, this is, I think, him kind of rationalizing to himself. He doesn't... They've promised that they're going to cut off her head, <laughs> right? As soon as she shows signs that she's changing into a vampire, then this is an unequivocal sign, right, that she is changing, and yet he doesn't act on it. So part of it, I do think, Tomas, is simple denial, right? I, I, I agree. I, I, I'm not going to try to pretend that I don't think that that's a, that's a big part of it here. But note that last sentence. It's easy to read over this kind of expression, this kind of pious, because these kinds of pious expressions proliferate, as we'll talk about in a little bit, um, in the end of the book here. Well, God's will be done, whatever it may be, and whithersoever it may lead. Um, I would encourage us not to read over that. I think that that's actually a significant sentence in this regard. I think that this is him actually well, God's will be done, I think is him actually acknowledging what is going to, what is sort of like the path that they are on. He's not going to act right now. He's not going to cut off her head tonight, right? Or tomorrow, probably, when she's sleeping would be easier. But anyway, he's not going to do that, right? Um, instead, he's saying, he says, God's will be done. Let's let's see what happens. He's going to trust it, whatever it may be and whithersoever it may lead, right? And he sees where it appears to be leading. And it seems to be leading down the downhill slope to the bad place, right? But... He says, let's, um, let's see what happens. I called this charming and sort of adorable, and it is, I find, his sort of affectionate denial of, uh, you know, the, the sort of affectionate state of denial that he's in, really cute. But it's more than that, too. Remember, again, the mistake he made before, he thought he knew best, right? Um, he could see what an asset Mina was. He could see uh, how she benefited them and how central she was to all their work. And yet he thought he knew better, right? But, I, you know, we shouldn't let her come along and everything. That would be awful. We know it's best, right? It would be easy. I mean, it would be in line with the promise that he made to Mina for him to say, well, I've diagnosed the case. That's what he said about Lucy, right? I've diagnosed the case. I know what's going on here. I can see the signs are clear. What I should do is clear. I must take it upon myself to cut off her head now. Right? In other words, I'm gonna, i got to give up on Mina. This is the end of the line for Mina. I need to destroy her because that's it. He's not going to call it yet. Why is he not going to call it? Just because he's timid? Just because he doesn't want to? He doesn't want to, but no, I don't think that's it. I think we see Van Helsing here actually being more humble. God's will be done, whatever it may be and whithersoever it may lead. He is no longer thinking that he's the one who's just going to make this call, right? He's going to see how this plays out. And, of course, that is the right call, as we see. Um, Cutting off Mina's head right now would have been bad, not only because Mina ends up dead and that's a bit of a downer at the end of the story, um, but think about himself, right? Had Mina not been there to release her wail of woe and pity, he probably would have been killed by the female vampires. He was hypnotized 
by the first female vampire he was attempting to liberate, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, uh, did he make the right call? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I would say it seems for the right reasons as well. Um, this, of course, is also just a reminder of the respect and affection. Uh, towards Mina that all the guys have, right? The value that they have for her. Um, they, you know, promise that they will set her free if she comes to be fully enslaved. Uh, and yet they, you know, are not going to be as quick as they promise uh, to do that because they value her so much. Okay. Um, this, I think, is a crucial passage at the end of the book. And again, the one the thing that shows, and Van Helsing himself seems to seems to recognize, that it shows that he was correct in making the decision that he made. And it shows us something about the vampire's control that I think is crucial for us to understand. Um, this is the encounter with the three women in the snow. They smiled ever at poor dear Madame Mina, and as their laugh came through the silence of the night, they twined their arms and pointed to her, and said in those so sweet tingling tones that Jonathan said were of the intolerable sweetness of the water glasses, Come, sister, come to us, come, come. In fear I turned to my poor Madame Mina, and my heart with gladness leapt like flame. I love Van Helsing's expressions. Uh, He's so, um, he's so volcanic uh, in how he expresses himself. For all the terror in her sweet eyes, the repulsion, the horror, told a story to my heart that was all of hope. God be thanked, she was not yet of them. I seized some of the firewood which was by me, and holding out some of the wafer, advanced on them towards the fire. They drew back before me, and laughed their low, horrid laugh. I fed the fire, and feared them not, for I knew that we were safe within our protections. They could not approach me whilst so armed, nor Madame Mina whilst she remained within the ring, which she could leave, should, could not leave no more than they could enter. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yana opines that my voluptuous vampirous voice uh, is more creepy than my glaurung voice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, notice, though, what I was trying to replicate there was that 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 water glass chime, right? And I just that that come, come, come is the perfect word uh, for that kind of resonance, right? Of the sound that glasses make. Um, and by the way, I love the the fact that this is one of the several examples that we get when the end of the when the when the book quotes itself. Right. Uh, I mean, again, this is one of the jokes I always used to. I, I mean, I used to make. It's why I used to. One of the primary reasons I used to teach this book in English 101. This is a book that's about reading itself carefully. I mean, like, if I want to show people how to do close reading, like this book is a book that does close reading of itself. <laughs> right. I mean, here's another. Here's Van Helsing in chapter uh, chapter 27 quoting. Chapter three, right? It's awesome. I mean, it's great. Uh, and doing a close, doing a close reading of, of the, you know, the, the way that they come back and they, they, they revisit the same passage which they've already reinterpreted once already, right? Uh, it's just, it's fantastic. Just absolutely love it. Um, anyway, so, uh, okay. Um, the significant thing here, of course, clearly, Mina's will is untouched. 
Uh, and that, I think, is a really important thing. When we think about her slavery, it really kind of helps to inform our understanding, I think, of what is actually going on with that. What is the nature of the mental control that the vampire operates um, over the victim, right? He does not make the victim... <laughs> you put it really simply, right? He can't make her love him. Right? That is, her own will is not corrupted. Her choice is not, she doesn't choose this. And we saw this in Lucy, too. Right? Um, remember Lucy with the push the flowers away, pull the flowers towards her, right? Um, when she was in her final, final stages. It's clear that Lucy, in her own, her own mind, was still there, even to the very end, well past the point where Mina is right now, even to the very end. Um, she was still exerting her own will, clutching the flowers to herself, right, the garlic flowers, uh, to try to protect herself. So we can see the victims are not corrupted in their will. So how are they controlled? How does the control work then? The vampire seems to be able to compel them to do things in a trance, like hypnotized people do things, right, or say things. Um, without their own will, without their own knowledge, even, perhaps. Um, and we see it's also her expression, that is, her words. She can't say... Remember how she stumbles to say the word vampire when she's writing her journal, even in the time when she's kind of cut loose, right? And so she is more free then, and that's when she starts... Uh, and just in time, right? In t just in time for her to figure everything out and tell them all exactly what to do. Um, and of course, they, which they couldn't figure out by themselves. So, and we saw the same thing with Renfield as well. This rebellion of his will against the will of the vampire, despite the vampire's control over him. So, um, I think that that's really interesting. I think that that's really important here. Um, and again, it clearly, I think, clearly affirms that Van Helsing is right not to have cut off her head before, right? Because her own will, she is still fighting. She's not even at that place where even half of her mind wants to push the flowers away, right? Um, she still feels terror, repulsion, and horror at being called sister and asked to come and join uh, the three vampire women. Of course, remembering back to that passage with Jonathan back in, in chapter 3, if I'm remembering correctly, um, of course it makes that more poignant. I mean, remember Jonathan feeling like he was feeling guilty, right? Because like he was having unfaithful thoughts to Mina in his desire for those vampire women to kiss him, and uh, his hoping that Mina never saw that diary, of course, ironic, and that she's going to <laughs> think back to that time when he's like, you know, I hope that uh, you know this never reaches Mina's eyes and causes her pain. No, actually, she's going to be typing it in triplicate later on. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so think about the irony there, right? That Mina comes, you know, this close to becoming one of them, right? So that the, the far from um, betraying Mina with the sisters, Mina herself will become one of them, that they're her, 
his own marriage to Mina, which was only an engagement at the time, um, would be like subsumed into that horrible, you know, uh, corruption of uh, love and affection and desire that we saw with Jonathan and the women. It's just, it's, it's really nifty how it all comes together, I think. But again, the crucial thing I wanted to point to is the, f- the, the freedom of her will, even when her, when she is, she can't be hypnotized anymore. Um, she is, uh, seems like she's gone most of the way over to vampire at this point, And yet her, the core of her will is still, is still free. Um, and yes, Bill McCain asks, is it significant that neither Van Helsing nor Mina would have resisted them alone? Yes. Yes, I think it's very significant. The two of them need each other, just like everybody else needs each other. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I want to shift a little bit now and um, talk a bit about what I mentioned before, the sort of the increased Christian focus as the book gets near to its end. You will certainly have noticed all of the way in which all of the characters are talking about God all the time and submitting to the will of God, and we are in the hands of God. They repeat these things again and again and again throughout the book. Um, And notice they even begin to do sort of a wider... They get sort of a wider understanding of the story within these terms. Um, This is back a little bit, but this is uh, Jonathan... Uh, speaking, Mina and I fear to be idle, so we have been over all the diaries again and again. Somehow, although the reality seems greater each time, the pain and the fear seem less. This is still after Mina's biting. There is something of a guiding purpose manifest throughout, which is comforting. Mina says that perhaps we are the instruments of ultimate good. It may be. I shall try to think as she does. That's Jonathan Harker's marriage in a nutshell, isn't it? I shall try to think as she does. Uh, that's right, Jonathan. Good boy. Good boy, Jonathan. Um, so notice, I'll say they, but really I mean Mina's understanding that she's coming to here, right? Um, there seems to be something of a guiding purpose manifest throughout the story. That is going back, looking at the whole thing, right? From chapter one on through. They've just been rereading the book themselves several times, right? And looking at the entire story, there seems to be something of a guiding purpose manifest throughout. Um, And um, let's think back for a second. Remember when Van Helsing was complaining about the devils working against them? Right in his frustration with all the the way that everything they tried to do to help Lucy was thwarted, right? And that time when he, uh, after Lucy's mom, you know, clears away the garlic and opens the window, right? Uh, and he almost breaks down. And Doctor Seward, I mean, he's frustrated too, but he doesn't quite get it. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't quite understand th- how Van Helsing is thinking, right? And when Van Helsing is talking about devils, right? Um, how do how are all the powers of the devils against us? Right, he says. Um, now, from this vantage point, after the certainly for Jonathan who is speaking here, the far worse thing um, of Mina's own victimization has occurred. Now they look back and they see the story differently, right? And uh, and we've seen this pattern several times before, right? Remember Jonathan in chapters 1 through 4. Remember the shift in his 
language, right? Not only the shift in his perspective from I am the superior Englishman and aren't those peasants adorable to bless that good, good woman, right? That, that, there's, there's more than that. We were, you know, looking at how his use of the devil imagery became more and more extreme and more and more literal, right, as he came to understand that it's, it's not just a superstition, it's not just a figure of speech, there seems to be something literally demonic going on here. And similarly, how his language becomes more and more pious as he um, is sort of, you know, he's, he's grasping sanity and reason and evidence, right, we see that, but at the same time we also see him submitting himself more and more consciously uh, to God, calling out to God more and more. And again, that's a pattern that we see first in Jonathan there, and we see it again. We see it in the ship's captain, right? Who again has a very sort of rationalistic look, you know, a, a way of looking at things at first and is above the superstitions uh, of the uh, of the peasant crew, right? Um, but in the end, he's the guy tying himself to the wheel with the crucifix, right? And relying upon the crucifix to protect his soul, right, uh, from from the vampire. Um, even Renfield himself, right? Remember his praying on a tumultuous scale. Remember his uh, overhear his the attendant overhearing him crying out, "God, God, God!" At the moment when he's fighting with Dracula at the end. Um, how and there's even that emphasis uh, how the attendant thinks there might have been two voices, but he doesn't really think so, because, I mean, how could there possibly have been two voices? But uh, but he kind of thinks that it kind of sounded like there was. Um, but he could swear that the word God was spoken by the patient, right? Yeah, okay. Not a big surprise there. Um, but again, it, it just kind of emphasizes this. Remember the Renfield's language in his impassioned appeal, right? That he is, a, uh, you know, he is sane and earnest, now he's fighting for his very soul. Um, uh, you know, for the sake of the Almighty, take me again. We see the shift in his language from, you know, being quite secular with sort of a tinge of, of religious mania, right, and setting Dracula up as God, um, using explicit, sort of adopting explicitly Christian forms of address for Dracula, right, and how that shifts around, um, how his own position sh- shifts around again until in the end he, in the end of his story, Renfield also seems to be submitting openly and verbally to God. Um, so again, it's a pattern that we see for many characters in many po- when when things get real, right? When uh, when characters really come to understand the vampire and what the vampire is doing, their response uh, is piety. Essentially, they they they. When their eyes are open to the spiritual realities that are actually at play, um, most of them go running to God. In a sense, what we see in the last chapters is this same pattern, just writ large in the narrative as a whole, if you see what I mean. Um, All of them, the entire book, does the same thing, and finally comes, in the end, to be more clearly emphasizing the need for the submission to God and trust in providence, which ultimately is what guides them and brings them through in the end. And of course, in this case, their recognition that providence was at work all the way through, right? Um, and I get I, more, I think this is not 
there's a, there's reason from within the frame of this book, there is reason to believe that this is not just sort of an interpretation of theirs. That is, it's not just them kind of imposing that out of a sort of a desperation, right? But rather an insight into what's really going on. That is, when they are talking about God and God's providence and submitting to the will of God, they're not um, just trying to console themselves, but rather their their eyes are finally open and they're perceiving reality. By the way, on that point, um, my favorite super obscure biblical reference that Bram Stoker makes, um, I wonder how many of you noticed it, and no, no fault to you if you didn't, because it is super obscure. Um, when Mina is out walking, I believe, if I remember correctly, it is the night that she is going out to find Lucy, when Lucy's sleepwalking on the night that she's first bit by Dracula. Um, and it's, uh, it's really misty, and she looks around and she says, I saw, as it were, men like trees walking. Super bonus points. Does anybody remember what that, uh, um, what that is from? Karita, you got it? Where is it from? Where is it from? Does anyone remember? It's a gospel quote. Good, yes. Matthew's got it. Carrie's got it. Excellent, excellent. Um, yes, it's what the blind man says. The man who was born blind. Um, when Jesus spits in the earth and puts mud on his eyes and, and, and washes the mud and he opens his eyes, and he says, what do you see? And the man says, I see men as trees walking. And Jesus washes his eyes again. And then he opens his eyes and he sees clearly, right? It's that half state. When you're, the eyes are open, the eyes that were blinded are open, but they're still not seeing clearly, right? They're not perceiving reality for what it is. And only after a further washing are the eyes opened um, uh, to be, now, to be understand. Mina, Mina is still seeing men as trees walking, right? She doesn't, she doesn't know, she doesn't understand. By the end of the book, they're seeing, not seeing men as trees walking anymore. Now they're seeing reality, right? And that again, I th- and, and and we look back as they're looking back, right? Let, you know, let's uh, take the suggestion of this passage and look back ourselves over all the diaries. Let's think think over all the diaries. I'm not going to review them all. I don't have that many passages. I'm 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 not going to do that many passages tonight. Um, is there something of a guiding purpose manifest throughout? Is there evidence of this kind of providential plan that's been at work from the beginning? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there is. Right? I mean, doesn't it seem kind of striking? Right? Rather amazing that the guy who goes over to Transylvania and escapes and has this like eyewitness testimony of who Dracula is, where he's going, what house he lives in, what solicitors he uses, right? All the information that Dracula comes out of Transylvania with, right? That that dude who, this the Transylvanian survivor, is the fiancé of the woman who's living in that, like, who's who witnesses Dracula's arrival, right? Dracula arrives in Whitby, it's got nothing to do with the Weston Ruff family, right? But the 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 woman who is his first victim in England is like the close friend of the fiance of the dude who knows all about him back. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of amazing, kind of like the, the the string of coincidences that bring everybody together there in the first place, right? Is 
pretty incredible. Um, I mean, you think about Van Helsing's reaction, right? I am dazzled, dazzled more than ever, right? When he reads Mina's journal and then Jonathan's journal, and he's like, holy cow, right? As Jordan Sunderland says, God likes to play the long game. Yeah, exactly. And we see God playing the long game. And this, the Count's house that he buys is next door to Dr. Seward's house, right? They wouldn't, I mean, yeah. Anyway, all of these coincidences. Exactly. Uh, exactly, Arthur. Good fortune as those who dwell in Transylvania call it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, there are lots of these kinds of coincidences. The bringing together of all of these of this group of people, right? Um, which, who together, have the knowledge and ability to put together super quickly, right? Um, once they get at it, right? They put it together really quickly. Seems to take them forever, but really in the big picture, if you imagine, think how hard it was like for Dr. Seward to accept the idea of vampirism, right? And imagine how hard it would be if they had never, if... Imagine where Van Helsing was before he talked, before he got connected to Mina, right? Um, And learned what she could tell him from Lucy's initial biting and Dracula's arriving in Whitby and, of course, Jonathan's journal as well, right? Without that information, how long it would be able to... it would it would take them to, um, to put all this stuff together. So, uh, is there something of a guiding purpose manifest throughout? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. There, there, there really is. So, again... We have reason to see within the frame of the book. We have we have we have reasons to to to, to see that this recognition of the, the the hand of God at work in all this and their submission to God's will and uh, to the hand of God. We see it's what Van Helsing says in Latin when he first steps across the threshold of Carfax. Right in manus tuus domine, he says, "In your hands, God. Um, in your hands, Lord." Literally, in Latin. Um, and, uh, of course, it's the stepping across the threshold thing, which is, of course, significant, as we saw with Jonathan stepping across the threshold in Castle Dracula. Um, but that, that, that movement in Manus Tuus Domine is what we see all of them doing very actively. As we get, and again, we have good reason to think that this is them finally opening their eyes and recognizing how things are and how things are supposed to go. More. Look at another passage here. This is right after the burn in the forehead, and this is uh, Van Helsing explaining. It may be that you may have to bear that mark till God himself see fit, as he most surely shall, on the judgment day, to redress all wrongs of the earth and of his children that he has placed thereon. And, oh, Madam Mina, my dear, my dear, may we who love you be there to see when that red scar, the sign of God's knowledge of what has been, shall pass away and leave your forehead as pure as the heart we know. For so surely as we live, that scar shall pass away when God sees right to lift the burden that is hard upon us. And God sees right to lift the burden. And as long as the scar is there, it's a sign that the burden is still upon them. Right? Not Again, it's not a sign of his wrath against Mina, right? Or of Mina's personal rejection. It's a sign of the fact that this burden, this responsibility, is still on them. And that seems kind of right. Till then we bear our cross, as his son did, in obedience to his will. It may be that we are the chosen instruments of his good pleasure, 
and that we ascend to his bidding as that other through stripes and shame, through tears and blood, through doubts and fears, and all that makes the difference between God and man. There was hope in his words and comfort, and they made for resignation. Mina and I both felt so, and simultaneously we each took one of the old man's hands and bent over and kissed it. Then, without a word, we all knelt down together, and, all holding hands, swore to be true to each other. We men pledged ourselves to raise the veil of sorrow from the head of her whom each in his own way we loved, and we prayed for help and guidance in the terrible task which lay before us. Um, Yana is wondering, could Van Helsing have known what the result of his blessing would be right, when he touched the wafer? Um, could it have been a test of sorts? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't. I don't believe that. And the main reason I don't believe that he he himself seems shocked by what happened. Um, we see him like Van Helsing when he's testing somebody, acts like he does when he's taking her pulse. Remember when he's kind of like encouraging her to talk and she's all excited and and he closes his hand on her wrist uh, and Doctor Seward notices that he's holding her pulse right and he thinks that. Van Helsing, I mean, he's taken people's pulse so often that he's just done it, you know. Reaching out to her hand, it was just second nature to put his hand that way, right? But, you know, he's listening, he's like, go on, yes, go on. And then he turns to Dr. Seward and he's like, 72 only. And in all this excitement, I have hope, right? Um, That's how Van Helsing acts when he's testing somebody, right? The way that he responds here, I don't see that at all. Not to mention the fact that we've got plenty of reason to believe that he's like that clueless, right? Would he? I mean, it's like the kind of thing. And a co- one of you, at least, was saying this last time. Doesn't it seem like, in re- in retrospect, is a pretty stupid thing to do, right? I mean, we know she's connected to vampires right now. We know the the effect that the host has on vampires. So maybe actually touching her skin with the sacred wafer was probably not the swiftest thing to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's an example of him not being too swift, right? He he wants to protect her, um, and he knows that it will protect her. It's the it's the thing that will protect her most most certainly of anything, right? Um, and so he wants to bless her with it and touch her with it. I, so I, I I do believe that it's in that way an honest mistake by uh, um, by by Van Helsing there. Um, yeah, exactly, uh, Carrie. He does place the host on the sacred, the soiled sacred, the soiled sacred soil, as you say, uh, to sanctify it again. Yeah, um, yeah, Carrie. I mean, I, I maybe I could say, if he had any ulterior motive, it might have been to be like, will this cleanse her? Maybe it would, right? Um, the pain and the burning seemed to be a bit of a surprise. So um, uh, anyway. So no, yeah, I don't think that he did that on purpose. But anyway, okay. Um, see Van Helsing's insight here, and this is especially important. Uh, that is, f- first of all, his insight of the the way in which, by doing what they're doing, by going through this suffering that they're going through, this time of suffering, by sort of accepting the suffering that God has allowed to happen to them, right? By being resigned to that, it makes for resignation, as Jonathan says. By being resigned to that, by accepting that, they are following in the footsteps of Christ. They are in bearing, in bearing the burden 
that is hard upon them, they are like Jesus bearing his cross, right? And he sees them as being directly parallel. They are, they are walking in, they are taking up their cross and following Jesus in doing this. And that, of course, is really significant in the context of the parallels to Jesus that we were looking at earlier on with Dracula himself, right? Dracula is the false Jesus, the anti-Jesus, right? They are joining with Jesus, following along. You know, they, they are, this is, this is the true likeness, not the false mockery, the devilish mockery of, um, of what is holy and what is true. Um, uh, so yeah, Jordan is pointing out, so it was just luck that he placed it on her forehead and ended up making the mark. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost like that was the plan, but I certainly don't think it was, it was his plan. Um, Yes, Rachel, I agree. Rachel says, I find it interesting that resignation is paired with hope and even comes as a result of hope. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, their hope lies, and in this way, it, this is very like... I mean, I, I, and, and I'm sorry, for those of you who are watching this class who are not Tolkien fans, please bear with me, and I, I can only apologize so much. I mean, like... Tolkien is what I do, right? And most of my listeners are Tolkien people, too, so I hope you'll bear with me when I um, fall into Tolkien speak here, but um, I would I actually think that this passage not only would I say that the hope that they are discussing here is very much like the hope that, you know, Sam is experiencing when he sees the star up above him in Mordor, Estelle the name that Aragorn has, that, that special kind of hope. They're the two, two elvish words for hope, right? Estel is that high hope. It's connected with the light of the Silmaril. Um, that hope is the hope that they're talking about here. I am sufficiently convinced that the hope that Bram Stoker is talking about here and the hope that Tolkien is talking about in The Lord of the Rings um, are... Uh, are the same hope. I am so confident that those two things are the same hope. I would actually sort of put it put it sort of the other way around, not just to say, "Hey, this is kind of like what Tolkien says," but rather, I think that if you can understand hope as Jonathan Harker and Mina talk about it in Dracula, it will help you to understand what Sam is going through and experiencing when you reread *The Return of the King* next. Um. Anyway. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go on. Um, the other thing, of course, that this does is it that this language that this resignation does is again it makes even clearer the lines between Dracula and Mina's team, right? Um, and again, you, we can see that in the parallel, right? The the, the anti-Jesus thing and the the fo positively following in the footsteps of Jesus thing. Um, but we can see that the 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 lines between them become much clearer as these kinds of realizations come through at the end. Um, here's Mina. Then, as he is criminal, and as he is criminal, he is selfish. And as his intellect is small, and his action is based on selfishness, he confines himself to one purpose. That purpose is remorseless. As he fled back over the Danube, leaving his forces to be cut to pieces, so now he is intent on being safe, careless of all. 
So his own selfishness frees my soul somewhat from the terrible power which he acquired over me on that dreadful night. I felt it. Oh, I felt it. Thank God for his great mercy. My soul is freer than it has been since that awful hour, and all that haunts me is a fear lest in some trance or dream he may have used my knowledge for his ends. Notice how Mina reasons her way. She, like, she deduces what has happened, whereas, like, you know, like, kudos to Dr. Seward and Van Helsing for figuring out what happened by a, but through observations, right? They saw her lethargy, and they concluded what it must mean. Mina deduces that it may happen or may probably has already happened, even though she has no evidence uh, that it actually did occur. Anyway, um, but, um, okay, so again, the point, again, notice the imbalanced centripetal force, right? Dracula, his action is based on selfishness, and so he can... How limited? The whole child brain thing, which seems a little bit odd, in some ways this seems to be derivative of just like particular psychological theories, psychological and sociological theories of the time, right? The, the, the connection between being a criminal and being insane, for instance, right? That has all the earmarks of uh, sort of contemporary psychological and, and, and sociological theory, right? But, but again, the important thing here is selfishness. He thinks only of himself. He cares nothing for anybody else. Um, and so, if, so Mina himself, he has used, but he, uh, he, 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 he cuts her off. He thinks absolutely nothing of her. And therefore, since he thinks nothing of her, he doesn't even think enough about her, if you see the distinction I'm making, right? Um, he writes her off so completely, right? She is so far from his concerns that he doesn't even fully think through what would be, what could be sort of the side effects of the connection that he has established um, uh, between himself and her, right? Um, yeah, good. Both Yana and Nancy are thinking of the uh, um, the phrenology stuff, right? The 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 feeling the skull and the 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 physiognomy stuff, right? The shape of your face being uh, illustrative of your character and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, um, you see how large the gap between the selfish and the unselfish has grown by the end, right? How how simplistic, how almost childish he is because he, he, he's always only thinking of one thing, right? He only ever thinks of himself and his own ends, and it even undermines his own success, his own position. And on the other hand, right, the unselfish ones, what do we see in them? We see them gaining, and gaining very significantly by the fact that they are many in bound together in love for each other, promising that they will be friends as long as they live, right? And all of those declarations of love and affection that we got almost instantly, right? Um, uh, I, I just, I, 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 I was looking back over some earlier passages of the book today and uh, just came across that passage, which I love so much, when Van Helsing first meets Jonathan Harker and says, and says to him, um, 
you know, so uh, shall we be friends for all our lives? Right? It's just so adorable. Uh, but anyway, um, so we've got these people bound together by love, um, and we see the consequence, right? Um, our dear Madame Mina is once more our teacher. This is after she explains to him exactly what Dracula has done and what his course is going to be and what they should do about it. Her eyes have been where we were blinded. Now we are on the track once again, and this time we may succeed. Our enemy is at his most helpless, and if we can come on him by day on the water, our task will be over. He has a start, but he is powerless to hasten, as he may not leave his box, lest those who carry him may suspect. For them to suspect would be to prompt them to throw him in the stream where he perish. This he knows and will not. Now, men, to our council of war, for here and now we must plan what each and all shall do. I shall get a steam launch and follow him, said Lord Godalming. And I horses to follow on the bank, lest by chance he land, said Mr. Morris. Good, said the professor, both good. But neither must go alone. There must be force to overcome force if need be. The Slovak is strong and rough, and he carries rude arms. All the men smiled, for amongst them they carried a small arsenal. Um, I, um, I, 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 I love the image uh, the mental image that I have of Quincy Morris, right, with like bandoliers of bullets and like two Winchesters, uh, you know, held up on his shoulders and pistols on either hip, right, uh, looking the the heart and soul of a Texan, right. Um, uh, but anyway, anyway, okay. Um, notice the contrast between their positions. There's the count. The one who thinks only of himself, the completely selfish one. Consequence? He's completely alone. And in the end, almost completely helpless, right? He can't do anything. To ha- he, he could plan ahead, right? And he laid his plans well, um, but he can't do anything to hasten. He can't speed up to get away from them, because if he reveals himself, those who are with him will suspect and kill him. Right, they'll throw the box in the in the river. Um, so by day, he can't do anything. Um, they, um, they are not powerless. Right, they have, as Van Helsing said before, the power of combination. Right, um, their unselfishness and their love for each other binds them together <clears throat> and enables them to take this. Uh, oddly assorted group. I mean, again, another coincidence. The fact that all three of these guys who used to, like, hang out together all the time and have, like, gone on adventures on really obscure parts of the world. Um, I mean, like, the Marquesas, which are, like, if I'm remembering correctly, aren't those a very small set of islands in the middle, like in the dead middle of the Pacific Ocean? I mean, these are these are like uh, really far-flung adventures that they have uh, that they have gone on. Um, anyway, uh, they um, these three guys who all know each other and are friends together all three of them falling in love with Lucy and all proposing in one day, right? And, and you know, them being already sort of this sort of this unit together. Anyway, it's... And then, you know, Dr. Seward's connection with Van Helsing. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, okay. All of them have 
strengths and abilities. I love even, you know, Lord Godalming, Arthur's um, steam launch, right? Like all those days, uh, you know, you know, uh, his uh, his days as a rich playboy, uh, you know, riding a steam launch up and down the Thames uh, are, 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 are paying off, right, in the long run. And, of course, his wealth, as Mina very, uh, very unashamedly says, right, thank God that Lord Godalming is rich, right, uh, and that we are in the land where money can do anything, right, so they, they just bribe their way to a you know, they, they just bribe their way to to getting anything that they want, right? Because fortunately, they have uh, uh, they have Lord Godalming, you know, uh, Mr. Moneybags there with them. So again, they have, you know, the, the, the people that they have with them, the different abilities that they have, you know, so the, the way that the three of them kind of close in Van Helsing with his... Uh, uh, with his hypnotism, right? And again, notice the contrast there between the, the 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 ability that Van Helsing has to hypnotize Mina and therefore gain information about Dracula and where he's going and where he is and what his status is, um, uh, uh, is is yet another one of the skills that the the people all bring right to the situation. And again, notice the contrast between the, again the selfishness and the unselfishness there. Um, Okay. Um, notice the how another thing is on the general subject of this sort of the 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 way that their concept shifts, the way that their understanding of what they're doing shifts at the end of the story. Um, notice how the concept of like this quest that they're on, this task that they have, the burden that has been placed upon them, um, their understanding of that. Uh, here, Van Helsing again. And now this is what he is to us. He have infect you. Oh, forgive me, my dear, that I must say such, but it is for good of you that I speak. He infect you in such wise that even if he do no more, you have only to live, to live in your own sweet way. And so in time, death, which is of man's common lot and with God's sanction, shall make you like to him. This must not be. We have sworn together that it must not. Thus are we ministers of God's own wish, that the world and men for whom his son die will not be given over to monsters, whose very existence would defame him. He have allowed us, that is God, not Dracula, presumably, he have allowed us to redeem one soul already, and we go out as the old knights of the cross to redeem more. Like them we shall travel towards the sunrise, and like them, if we fall, we fall in good cause." Okay, so notice how this has shifted. Back, remember when they first made their pledge to each other after, like, in outside Mina's tomb, or Lucy's tomb, right? When uh, when they cut off Lucy's head and, and set her free, um, they, um, they are... So they promise to each other that they will see this through. But what they promise to each other is to pursue this monster. Like that's the, the way they talk about it, right? The, there's this. There's this. We must end the evil of this monster. We must rid England of this monster, right? Um, that's how. So they set out to destroy this monster who's doing all these evil things. They cease to be. They cease to be thinking in that way. It's not that they cease to be seeking to do that. They're still out for destroying the monster, but that's not how they define their quest anymore. That's not how they think about it. Instead, they think about it as redeeming souls, right? Um, saving 
the souls of the victims, such as for whom Mina is the representative, right? And 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 of whom she is sort of the I'm going to say symbol, but of course she's more than a symbol uh, of them. I mean, she is one. Um, but um, but anyway, she, she she is the reminder of these victims whose souls uh, they are going to be redeeming by their actions. But of course, it's not just the victims that are going to be redeemed, right? Where does this shift from the negative focus, destroy the monster, to the positive, save souls, start? With Mina, of course, right? Uh, and her own pity and mercy towards Dracula himself. Jonathan, she said, and the words sounded like music on her lips. It was so full of love and tenderness. Jonathan, dear, and you all, my true, true friends, I want you to bear something in mind through all this dreadful time. I know that you must fight, that you must destroy, even as you destroyed the false Lucy, so that the true Lucy might live hereafter. But it is not a work of hate. That poor soul who has wrought all this misery is the saddest case of all. Just think what will be his joy when he, too, is destroyed in his worser part, that his better part may have spiritual immortality. You must be pitiful to him, too, though it may not hold your hands from destruction." Jonathan, of course, is at the time, and this is the morning after Mina's victimization, highly resistant to this, right? He's wanting to condemn Dracula's soul to burning hell if he possibly could. And Mina is saying, oh, hush, hush, hush. And she prays that God would not treasure his his wild words, right? Um, she is the one to recognize. It's not just that they're not out to destroy the monster, that they're out to save souls instead. That is, it's not to say that they're just kind of redefining the same task, but rather they're re-envisioning that task itself, right? The monsters themselves are themselves victims. Ultimately, they were people, and they were people that were victimized, right? Um, that fell under this devilish curse of vampirism. They, too, need to be saved. And, of course, it's not surprising that it's Mina who recognizes this first, not only because she is smarter and better than all of them, but also because she herself has experienced it. She knows, right? As we see, you know, close to coming to pass later on, um, and we we sort of realize the, the potential of it more fully later when she encounters the three vampire women, she could easily become one of them, right? She will become one of them. Um, those horrible creatures, those monsters that need to be destroyed, Mina would be one of them. Right, and she recognizes that, and so, gosh, it's like that also is another consequence of her being being victimized, right? Um, it puts her in the position where she can now understand um, this very much, uh, very much differently. Um, we see Van Helsing reflecting on this uh, when he is executing the three vampire women. Oh, my friend John, but it was butcher work. Had I not been nerved by thoughts of other dead, and of the living over whom hung such a pall of fear, I could not have gone on. I tremble and tremble even yet, though till all was over, God be thanked, my nerve did stand. Had I not seen the repose in the first place, and the gladness that still... 
in the gladness that stole over it, just ere the final dissolution came, as realization that the soul had been won, I could not have gone further with my butchery. I could not have endured the horrid screeching as the stake drove home, the plunging of writhing form the, and lips of bloody foam. I should have fled in terror and left my work undone. But it is over. And the poor souls, I can pity them now and weep as I think of them, placid each in her full sleep of death for a short moment, air fading. <laughs> From butcher to bluefer, as Sarah Lagarde says. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I get Van Helsing embraces it. Van Helsing gets it. Van Helsing experiences it, right? Um, when he uh, when he destroys the vampire women, and of course, it's also the final note that we get in Dracula's own story as well. As I looked, this is Mina again. The eyes saw the sinking sun, and the look of hate in them turned to triumph. But on the instant came the sweep and flash of Jonathan's great knife. I shrieked as I saw it shear through the throat, whilst at the same moment Mr. Morris's bowie knife plunged into the heart. It was like a miracle, but before our very eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. I shall be glad as long as I live that even in that moment of final dissolution there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. This glimpse of... Dracula, the man before before he even went down, apparently, the dark road that he went down even before death, right, from all the rumors that Van Helsing has heard about him. Um, anyway, we see this with Dracula as well, and, you know, when she says it was like a miracle, she's referring in the first hand to the crumbling of the body into dust, right? Um, but it seems, I think, that some of that it was like a miracle also kind of carries over to the uh, miraculous piece. Again, her saying that she could never have imagined the look of peace that rests upon his face. That seems to be, seems to me, part of the miracle uh, that she is that she is seeing that she is seeing. Okay, um, so let's go back to Mina and her central role, coming back to where we started at the beginning of class. Um, Van Helsing, why shouldn't Mina kill herself? I mean, that would be safe, in a sense, right? And she talks about it's being the safest thing. Um, if she were to die right then, you know, back in England, before they leave, right? Um, while they're all right there, they could cut off her head, make sure there's no vampire action, right? So uh, she would be certain... Um, that she would find peace, right? Um, but yeah, Veronica's suicide is a sin, and a pretty bad one. Um, but, uh, I mean, certainly within the tradition that they're operating within, as you can tell from the suicide's grave, remember? Um, suicide is a big deal. But anyway, so that's why, I mean, Van Helsing says, you, you would not kill yourself, right? Veronica, that's, he's, he's worried about that, right? Let's not go there. Um, but... Euthanasia? Yeah, okay, that would be safe. But 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 wait, why not? Why is that a bad move? Right? Um, it would be safest to do, right? There's a way in which you could easily say it would be the kindest thing to do for Mina. You could talk yourself into that, right? Um, anyway, so she, she has just said, there is one way that I could take that would be... But I must not... We must not take it, right? What is that way? Asked Van Helsing in a hoarse voice. 
what is that way which we must not, may not take? That I may die now, either by my own hand or that of another, before the greater evil is entirely wrought. I know, and you know, that were I once dead, you could and would set free my immortal spirit, even as you did my poor Lucy's. Were death or the fear of death the only thing that stood in the way, I would not shrink to die here, now, amidst the friends who love me. But death is not all. I cannot believe that to die in such a case, when there is hope before us, and a bitter task to be done, is God's will. Therefore I, on my part, give up here the, the certainty of eternal rest, and go out into the dark, where may be the blackest things that the world or the netherworld holds. Death is not all. Right? Um, if the fear of death were the only thing, then yeah, we, 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 we could just brave that, right? And take the safe way out. Safe, safest, really, frankly, for everybody, right? But that's not the only thing, right? Notice what she says. I cannot believe that to die in such a case when there is hope before us and a bitter task to be done is God's will. Notice both sides of that, right? Um, she perceives, A, well, here, again, she's channeling Gandalf, right? Despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt, right? She doesn't see the end beyond all doubt. It may still work out. Yes, we're risking. It would be, you know, safest guarantee of my immortal safety uh, for me to die here and be set free. Um, but we don't know that her ultimately becoming a vampire is certain. But not only that, not only would it be an act of despair, ultimately, not only would it be them saying, okay, God, we're going to hedge our bets, right? Uh, we're going to take the safe way out here because we don't want to take any chances. To say to God, we don't want to take any chances is to say, we're not willing to put ourselves in your hands. We're not willing to submit ourselves to your will. We don't trust you to handle this and to make things come out okay, right? So that's one issue. But the other issue is there's a bitter task to be done, right? God has a job for her. And so for her to take this easy way out would be would be shirking, right? Would be refusing the task that God has set not only before them, but before her. She has a job to do, as we see. She has a the most important job to do. Um, her endurance in her suffering is the important job that she is, the most important job that she has to do. Um, so, uh, yes, exactly, exactly good. Joyce was just emphasizing that point, the, the rejection of the job that has been assigned to her. Absolutely. Yep, yep, very good. Um, yeah, Carrie says, is this what sets her apart from Dracula, this feeling of submitting to the higher power for his will and for an important task? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, to reject God's will, to take the certain way out, um, even though there's still hope before you, to refuse the bitter task, ultimately that's selfish, right? Um, thinking only of yourself and not, not only not of others, but not of God, not of what you're supposed to be doing. Um, to recognize there is a plan for you and you need to fill that you, the, you've been given a job and you need to do that job, right? Um, that's ultimately centrifugal rather than centripetal. That is very much the difference between uh, 
you know, the, the sort of that core difference between Dracula's outlook and uh, and theirs. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so you see that this ultimately the submission that they express towards God and God's will is the ultimate expression of that unselfishness, the ultimate sort of manifestation of that unselfishness. If Dracula and his child brain, right, are the sort of the logical end and the way that his evil undoes itself, right, um, his ultimate helplessness in the end, right, um, he thinking only of himself and wanting to do all things his way and, and according to his plan and to, to be master, right? Where does that get him in the end? Helplessly in a box on a barge, unable to move himself or do anything to aid himself or prevent his enemies from killing him, right? That's ultimately where the desire to be his own master gets him. Um, whereas they who not only are unselfish in the sense of wanting something for others' good rather than theirs, unselfish not only in the sense of sacrificing things and enduring suffering themselves for others, but ultimately being unselfish in the sense of submitting to the will of God and of providence rather than to their own and trusting themselves into the hands of God. That puts them in the position where they are at the end of the story. Um... That's okay, Quincy. This is right after the previous passage. Of course, Quincy is the first one to swear the oath that she asks them to swear. That if the time comes, they will, uh, they will take care of things, right? They will kill her and cut off her head. Quincy was the first to rise after the pause. He knelt down before her and, taking her hand in his, said solemnly, I'm only a rough fellow who hasn't perhaps lived as a man should to win such a distinction, but I swear to you by all that I hold sacred and dear that should the time ever come, I shall not flinch from the duty that you have set us, and I promise you too that I shall make all certain, for if I am only doubtful, I shall take it that the time has come. My true friend was all that she could say amid her fast-falling tears as, bending over, she kissed his hand. Um... Notice Quincy's humility, right? I think that Quincy, uh, Quincy Morris is totally the Sam Gamgee of this book, right? He is the most humble of all of them. He's the one who puts himself forward least, right? Uh, except when it comes to firearms, but uh, but I mean, he you know he 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 he's like he draws less attention to himself uh, than uh, than anybody else, right? Um, Notice him promising to, you know, so he's here promising to, to save her soul, to have mercy on her. Notice how this is also the, an extension of that, you know, this is one of the early extensions of that unselfishness. Jonathan's own difficulty in making this, must I swear this to my wife, he says, right? And she's like, yeah, you most of all, actually, right? Um, Jonathan's reluctance, though, obviously, very understandable, is ultimately selfish, right? I can't bear to think of doing this, right? But if the time comes when the need is to do this, it is for her good, right? Um, right to, Mina is their instructor again. Um, 
think of the way that he that this this promise is about making sure that she will be a holy instead of an un, unholy memory. Again, thinking of the words that Van Helsing uses about Lucy at Lucy's grave. Here's Quincy at the end. I am only too happy to have been of any service. Again, what a Sam Gamgee-ish thing to say, isn't that? Um, yeah, yeah, Carrie, you're right. Uh, Quincy's, uh, f- uh, Quincy's firearms are kind of like Sam's pots and pans, absolutely. Um, I am only too happy to have been of any service. Oh, God, he cried suddenly, struggling up to a sitting posture and pointing to me. It was worth for this to die. Look, look. The sun was now right down upon the mountain top, and the red gleams fell upon my face, so that it was bathed in rosy light. With one impulse the men sank on their knees, and a deep and earnest Amen broke from all as their eyes followed the pointing of his finger. The dying man spoke. Now God be thanked that all has not been in vain. See, the snow is not more stainless than her forehead. The curse has passed away. And, to our bitter grief, with a smile and in silence, he died, a gallant gentleman. Um, remember the red gleams of the sunset shining on her face? So, um, a couple things we should be remembering, right? The sunset was the time of freedom, right? And so now it's the time when she has been finally set free. Remember the red light at sunset shining in and the connection to the Dracula's red eyes, right? Um, the sun, the setting sun, as reflected in the um, in the in the windows of Saint Mary's Church in Whitby, right? That Mina saw, and she always associated with that with Dracula's red eyes, right? Um, but now, instead of that light of the setting sun being echoed in the in the you know the basilisk glare of Dracula's uh, evil red eyes. Uh, it's showing upon the the clarity of her of her forehead. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karita says, "What? No, I don't cry over dying cowboys." You know, Karita. It was funny. Even even among even among college freshmen who were taking that class because they were compelled to by requirement, and so therefore I have no particular reason to enjoy the class. Uh, there was always at least one woman in each one of my classes who pretty much fell in love with Quincy Morris when we studied this book. Uh, you're totally in good company. Um, he's uh, he's awesome, um, and I love how they call they how they they call their son Quincy uh, after him. So we see here the curse has passed away, right? In the end, Mina is a vehicle of God's blessing. Just as her stain, right, that spot on her forehead was a reminder of the task that God has laid upon them, and even in some ways her suffering was gave them the strength and the resolution to perform that task, so her stainlessness here at the end is the plain sign, the plain sign of God's approval. Right, it is in the so just as the, the the need for them to do the job, again quoting Sam Gamgee unconsciously, um, was was you know the 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 need was given in in her spot. The removal of the spot is as 
you know, God's declaration, you know, that they have done well, right? That they have completed uh, the job and that he approves. Um, so back to the title of the class, Our Star and Our Hope. Again, remember Van Helsing kind of tosses that out when he's really kind of buttering her up, right? He's trying to soften the blow of leaving her out of their councils and leaving her behind on that fateful night. You must be our star and our hope, right? Um, so don't think that you're not going to have a role, right? No, you will be. We'll be thinking of you, and you will be like a guiding star to us, right? And he's he's just blowing air at that point. I mean, this is this is complete BS on on Van Helsing's part, right? Um, he's mistaken. Uh, he's making a mistake, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about here. But in saying that, he was more right than he knew. That is, in fact, her role, right? Not only does she guide them literally in the sense of actually instructing them where to go and what to you know, everything, what to do, she's also their moral compass, both passively and actively, right? Um, passively in that, you know, she is that reminder, that spur that we've talked about, um, and also actively in showing them, like, the, the way that she is the one who sort of teaches them to move forward, not only in hope, but in pity, right, in mercy towards even the vampires themselves, redefining their quest from one of destruction and even of vengeance, in Jonathan's case, uh, to one of, to one of mercy, right? Um, so she is their guide, their moral guide in that way. Again, as I said, both actively and passively, um, she demonstrates for them the kind of unselfishness that they need to attain, right? That all of them need to embrace and ultimately do embrace. Um, she is serving as the star that they can confidently steer their course by. So, if you hear anybody talking about how Bram Stoker marginalizes women in this book or you know, manifests a fear of strong women and uh, the desire to keep women subservient, you can politely and gently set these very confused people straight. Tell them they're missing a really good book, uh, which uh, uh, they should read, because I think they'd enjoy it more. Maybe they wouldn't, but anyway, I'd hope they should. All right. I got through all my slides, and we're early, little bit early. Um, how about that? So next time, don't forget, next time, please do send me emails. Let me know what you think, what you'd like to talk about. Um, have I not answered your question? I know every week I know I don't get to everybody's questions and comments. Um, so I, if I missed a question that you had that you would... Um, yeah, Arthur says, it was like a miracle. Yeah, exactly. My finishing on time. Um, uh, anyway, so if there's a question that you asked that I didn't get to and you'd still like to talk about, like I said, if there's a theme that you would like me to go back over or something that we didn't touch on or something that you were interested in that I um, that I kind of passed over, um, I would... Um, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to talk about that. So send me any questions and thoughts you have. I, as I mentioned before, I've already received a couple, so I have a couple ideas already of, uh, uh, of directions to go. But, uh, but I'd be happy to... And then after that, after next week, um, we're not done. We still have five more weeks of this class after tonight. Because after next week's uh, Q&A and sort of wrap-up discussion class, we also are then going to talk about movies. Right, uh, so we're going to go through and we're going to look at our four movies from four different periods in time, four different decades, and uh, look at adaptation of different approaches to adapting 
uh, this work and, and the very different story that gets told by uh, uh, by many of uh, many of the storytellers in these in these films. So uh, so that'll be fun. So uh, Tomas, um, send them to Corey Olson at signumu.org or Olson at Mythgard.org or Olson at TolkienProfessor.com. Those will all get to me. Um, so please do go ahead and send them to me. Or if you just go to the to the <clears throat> Mythgard website or the Signum website and you go to the webs the email address at the bottom of the page, info at Mythgard.org or info those will get to me too. Uh, so um, any of those will be good. Alright. Um Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This has been a really fun discussion of this book. Still have more to come, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to getting to movies after this. But thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>